0: As you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word to two texts. We are going to read once again from Ephesians chapter 5, and then we're going to move from Ephesians 5 back to 2 Chronicles 20. 2 Chronicles 20 is one of those passages of Scripture that should ever and always be actively on the tip of of your tongue. It is a chapter of scripture that should ever and always be right there on the forefronts of your hearts and your minds as God's people. It is it is a wonderful text and it is one more example of the way that God loves to turn the wisdom of the world upside down in the way that he accomplishes his purposes in and through us. For the last generation, if you have spent more than five minutes in a church in America, you have been very aware of the worship wars that have been taking place. What we get to look at today is God's war through worship. Ephesians chapter 5, once again. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would now over to Second Chronicles 20, I'm going to read just 20 through 26. And so the people of God rose early In the morning, and they went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. And he put them on the front line of the army. And they sang out, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction and when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir they then helped to destroy one another and when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness they looked toward the horde and behold there were dead bodies lying on the ground none had escaped when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Berakah, which means the valley of blessing. For there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Barakah until this day. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for his assistance today. Our Heavenly Father, one of the biggest challenges that we have in taking up our cross and following our Savior, Jesus Christ, is embracing the unusual and abnormal ways that you like to accomplish your ends. And that is because we like to participate in ways that make sense to us. And we like to participate in ways that gives us a name as we participate. But you, oh Heavenly Father, you love to do things for us so that your name may be glorified as we enjoy your blessing. And so help us today as we look into your scripture. Speak to us in a fresh way that our singing may be changed forever. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Why do we sing? I mean, really? Is it just because, you know, throughout the history of things, you know, in the churches you grew up as children, when you went to church, you sang? Why do you sing? Is it just to bring God glory? In the worship wars that have taken place over the last generation, what has often happened is two different extremes have been reacting against one another, and what has been lost within that fighting is a balanced biblical understanding of singing. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 very clearly that as we are in the process of our sanctification, as we are learning to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called in the extravagant grace of God in Christ, as we are growing in this sanctification, as we learn to walk as he has said in the sacrificial love of Christ as we learn to walk in the light as we have been made part of the light of God exposing darkness as as we have been called to walk in wisdom and as we are called to walk in the spirit make no mistake these are just different aspects of of what he is calling us to as we grow in our sanctification. And that sanctification is a process of struggle and difficulty, sometimes suffering, but always warfare. Now, yes, I know, it's not until chapter 6 that we get into the spiritual armor, right? What we're looking at in summer Bible school this summer. But make make no mistake, what he has been discussing from the very beginning of this letter is how does the people of God grow in their identity in Jesus Christ in the midst of conflict and warfare? The church in Ephesus lived in a culture that wanted absolutely nothing to do with the one true God. And they especially wanted nothing to do with a suffering Savior who had died on a Roman cross. They wanted nothing to do with that. More than that, those who were following Jesus Christ and, and growing in their sanctification were becoming a threat to, to the city of Ephesus. They were becoming a threat to the darkness, especially as that darkness had been manifesting itself in witchcraft and and through the practice of the dark arts. They are become a threat to the economy of Ephesus as, as people are turning to Jesus Christ and they're turning away from idolatry. They are no longer purchasing the little idols of Artemis that were made by the silversmiths as the people of God are embracing Christ, and as they are maturing and growing in Jesus Christ, the result is also that there are people who are being rescued out of the darkness and who are being drawn into the kingdom of light along with the followers of Jesus. Do you see what is happening? Their their very existence in Ephesus has become a threat. And it is a threat both in terms of the world It is a a threat in terms of the flesh, and it is a threat in terms of the dark forces. And beloved, you and I live in the exact same situation. When you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ and we are redeemed and we are rescued out of slavery to sin and death and we are made free in Christ in order to embrace the the effulgence of his glory and, and, and just how extravagant his grace is, when this happens, you go from being on one side of the warfare to being on a new side of the warfare. There is no neutrality. And with the Apostle Paul, in the midst of all this, what he says to the people of God, if you're going to respond well, you need to walk in the Spirit. And here's what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. You relate to one another, and you relate to God in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Both in the content of what is said in the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and in the melody of what is sung. True worship is both vertical and horizontal. And when you and I are called into this place, what have we seen in in our readings today? When we are called into this place by faith, we are called where? Into the heavenly places. When we are called into this place to worship, we are not called to come in here and, and create some service of worship, we are called to come in and through Scripture enter into the worship that is already taking place. We are invited through the summoning of God to participate in the festal gathering of the angels, the departed saints, who are put on display before us as living before the throne of God, responding to his glory with song. But who also is singing in that service? Well, the psalmist in Psalm 22 and the writer writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2 has made it clear that Jesus himself is the sweet singer of Israel who is leading the song of his brothers. Who Jesus, when he was on the cross, took the words of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, took those words onto his own lips as they became expressions of his faith and as expressions of his trust and as it became motivations of his obedience and devotion to stay on that cross when he didn't have to. As the words of Psalm 22 were coming out of him on that cross. As they sustained him on that cross. He says that when I come through all this, I will stand in the congregation of my brothers and I will lead them in singing your praise. Who else is singing in the heavenly service? According to Zephaniah 3, it is also God the Father. That God the Father sings in response to the work of His Son. The Son sings to the Father and leads the people of God to sing to the Father. And yet the Father also is singing because of what His Son has made, uh, has made actual through the accomplishment of salvation through His cross and resurrection. That the heavenly father, we are told, is one who because of the work of his son, he sings. Is that how you hear the worship of the heavenly places? Where the father is singing, where the son is singing, and where the angels and departed saints are all singing? Because that's what we are told is happening when God draws us not just into the heavenly service, as he draws us into the echo of the eternal heavenly song. Why do you sing? Why do we sing? We don't only sing in order to glorify God, the apostle says. We sing to encourage and bolster one another. And when you re- go through the history of, of the psalms and the in the use of hymns and spiritual songs and worship what you will find is those that are written well are songs that not only are directed from the congregation to god but also where there is encouragement where there is where there is uh, uh, help and and where there is togetherness expressed in the singing one to another Every song that we have sung so far today has been sung to bring glory to the Father, to bring glory to our triune God. And yet, also, if you look at the words, we've been singing to one another. What has been lost in the worship wars is these extremes of, well, either God is the only audience, or that the, the people are the focus. The balance of the scripture says both because worship is a conversation. It is a dialogue between God and his people. And as we engage in that dialogue, we engage as those who enter into the song of Jesus as we sing to the Father and as we listen to the Father sing over us. But in 2 Chronicles 20, there is this amazing revelation about what God does with singing. As we see a point to singing, as we see a purpose for singing that so often is left out in the conversations that God's people have about worship. And that is the, what we see here in 2 Chronicles 20 as it's being played out in this geopolitical conflict between the southern kingdom of Judah and these surrounding nations of, uh, uh, of, the, of these, these enemies of, of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. But make no mistake, the conflict that we are seeing here in Second Chronicles 20 is speaking to us of a greater conflict that exists between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And so just as the Apostle Paul is talking about that conflict within our sanctification in Ephesians, the same thing is being put on display here for us in 2 Chronicles 20. And there is a strategy that the Lord gives us here that if we will utilize, it will completely change the way that we engage in our sanctification. Now the situation is this. Jehoshaphat is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah so the northern kingdom the southern kingdom all right they have divided Ahaz is the is the king of the north the evil wicked king of the north and Jehoshaphat is the king of the southern kingdom Jehoshaphat is described to us as a good king He's one of the few good kings in the history of Israel. He is like his father, David. And through uh, the faithfulness of Jehoshaphat, as he has entrusted himself to Yahweh, what is happening is Yahweh is blessing his efforts. And there is reformation and then there is revival that is happening in the southern kingdom. He he is sending princes to take Torah out into the southern kingdom. And so the word of God is being taught in a fresh, in a new way throughout the land. Idolatry is being, the idols are being broken. Idolatry is is being pushed out and the people of God are, are returning to true worship of the true God and they are seeing reformation and they are experiencing revival. Good things are happening. The people of God are once again embracing their covenant Lord and the covenant Lord is blessing them. Now here's here's how America thinks. All right, blessing has come and so now... The kingdom of Judah will have this nice, great time of peace and prosperity. And the blessing that God is going to bring is that they just get to kind of coast with with personal peace and affluence kind of defining their existence. You see, that's how America thinks. That's not how God thinks. And that is certainly not how the dark think the result of this reformation and this revival that is taking place is that now the southern kingdom is no longer going along with the pagan idolatry of the surrounding nations they are sticking faithfully to Yahweh and whenever the people of God have stuck faithfully to Yahweh what has happened The blessings of Yahweh have not only been blessings for them, but it has led to them having victory over their enemies. And so what is happening is Ammon uh, and Moab and Mount Seir, they are now feeling threatened. Revival and reformation, growth. Growth has made them a threat. And so they come to attack. The southern kingdom at this time, it's, it's just two tribes. It's just two little tribes. And what happens is they find themselves surrounded by enemies. What are they going to do? And so they do three things here. And the first thing they do is they engage in this seemingly impossible situation, by seeking the face of God. Earlier in chapter 20, in verses 6 and 7, Jehoshaphat prays, O Lord God our Father of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations in your hand or power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? He recounts the the covenant purposes of God. But make no mistake, what he does is he doesn't say, All right, let's summon the forces. He doesn't say, all right, let's start laying out our strategy. Let's start putting together our military plan. And what he certainly doesn't do, like the evil kings of Israel throughout their history, he doesn't say, well, what what kind of pact can we enter into with these pagan nations to save ourselves? Instead, they pray. And in their prayer, they do two things. They review the character of God. Who is this God? How has he revealed himself to us? They review his character. They review the the sovereign power of his presence and purposes where nothing can stand in his way. His power and his might is so immense that nothing can stand opposed to him. They review his character, and they recount his redemptive deeds. And you could go on and on with this recounting. Did you not redeem us out of bondage and slavery in Egypt? Did, Did you not bring us safely into this land to to give this to us as an eternal inheritance? Did you not provide us judges throughout the time of when we would rebel against you, and yet you were gracious when we returned and, and provided us salvation? And they could have gone one thing after another, after another, but make no mistake, they review God's character, they recount God's covenant purposes and activities. Amy Carmichael, the Presbyterian missionary, has famously said, when you are at the end of your own resources, that is precisely when you are at the beginning of God's. And not, by the way, she doesn't mean by that, that you've got to try all your own stuff first, and then you can start taking advantages of God. What she is saying is, once you realize that you are powerless. You are now right in that sweet spot to look to God and to his power. They engage their, their situation by seeking the face of God. Notice next, they enact a strategy of faith. Verse 12, Jehoshaphat, and, and as he continues to pray, he says, we do not know what to do but our eyes are on you. Beloved, there is a direct correlation between God's work in and through his people and the acknowledged helplessness of his people. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but we're going to trust you. Here's who you are. Here's your faithfulness from the past. We know that your purposes are not only past, but they are also future. So right now, what we are going to do is as we recount the past, we are going to anticipate the future. And we're going to do this by simply trusting They engage in seeking the face of God. They enact this strategy of faith. And what God says to them is, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, it is mine. Do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Hear me, Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And the result of this, right, they have sought his face. They they are seeking this strategy of faith. They are trusting, and the result is that God answers them, and so they worship. Now, so far, this makes sense to us. You cried out for help, God is promising help, and so you respond in worship. But notice that the worship is not only something that is done in response to the answer that God has given. Because the next day, they actually now engage in that strategy of faith by assembling. God has said, the fight is not yours, it is mine. So you would think, oh, well, then they'll just kind of hang out in the back. They'll just, just stay home and let God take care of things. No, they assemble in response to what he has said. They get together, they come together as the assembly of God in order to remember who he is, and to remember his his past deeds as an anticipation of fulfillment of covenant purposes. They come together, and they sing, and they worship. But then, when it comes time for the actual warfare to begin, what we are told is, is that Jehoshaphat takes the Kohathites and the Korahites, and he puts them on the front lines of the army. The Kohathites and the Korahites are, are two clans uh, within the Levites. And their purpose, um, once the, Israel came into the land, their purpose was to serve at the tabernacle. And then once the temple was, was, uh, was finished, they, their purpose was to serve at the temple. And very specifically, what they did was they served the Lord in song. They were singers. This is the choir dressed in holy attire whose purpose is to lead the people of God in song, whose purpose is to reflect the song of God to his people. And the choir is put on the front line of the army. Do you think they did that in the the War of Independence? Although I had this mug as a kid that always had the, the guy on the snare drum and the guy on the flute. The flute, a very masculine instrument going into warfare. They put the choir on the front line. And now the choir leads the people in singing. But this singing is not in response to something. This singing is in anticipation of something. Now get this. There is singing that takes place as worship. But here we see that there is also a singing that takes place that is warfare. It is when they begin to sing. It is as the instruments pl- play. It is as the voices are raised. And as they are singing, that is the point where God now gets active and he routs their enemies. Now think about that. We're going to go into warfare and our weapon is going to be singing. Is this how you view the singing that we do when we come into this place? Is this why you sing? We certainly are to sing in response to who God is and in response to what God has done and in anticipation of what is coming in the fullness when Christ returns. We certainly should be singing for those things, but do you sing as a form of participation in the warfare of God? When you are wrestling with that sin in your heart, when you are struggling with, with some coworker or a family member or something that has come from outside of you, where, where the, the forces of darkness are coming against you, do you respond with singing? Or is singing only a response to these other things in worship? Beloved, singing is a strategy of warfare for the people of God to express their trust in Him and to wait for Him to act. And every one of us, if you are in Christ... You are in a warfare of growing in your sanctification that is going to come through struggle. And what we are told here is that one of the chief weapons in our arsenal is to sing. Martin Luther said, music is a fair and lovely gift of God, which has often weakened and moved me to the joy of, awakened and moved me to the joy of preaching. Music drives away the devil and makes people happy. Next, after theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honor. I would not change what little I know of music for something great. Experience proves that that next to the word of God only, music deserves to be extolled as the mistress and governance of the feelings of the human heart. We know that to the devil's music is distasteful and insufferable, and my heart bubbles up and overflows in response to music, which has so often refreshed me and delivered me from dire plague. You know what the Roman Catholic Church said about the singing that came out of the Reformation? Without the singing, that the gospel would not have taken hold. The Roman Catholic Church said if it was not for all of their singing, where this new gospel theology was put into song, if it wasn't for that, there would not have been success. They weren't just singing, Beloved. They were participating in the work of God in pushing back darkness and rescuing people into the light. William Law, in his spiritual classic, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, has an entire chapter to encourage the people of God to sing the Psalms He says, the Psalms create a sense and delight in God, and they awaken holy desires. They teach you how to ask, and they prevail with God to give. They kindle a holy flame, and they turn your heart into an altar, your prayers into incense, and they carry them as a sweet-smelling savor to the throne of grace when it comes to your sanctification, and when it comes to the mission of this church is singing a weapon in the arsenal that we are using as participants in God's purposes. Are you singing? How do you sing? Why do you sing? What do you want God to do in and through your singing? Or do you want him to do anything? Have you been convinced that singing is only for him to bring himself glory? William Law says if you can't scurry up some worship in the church house, I know you ain't doing it on the battleground. Are you singing? When you come into this place, how do you sing? Why do you sing? What do you want God to do in you? What do you want God to do in your neighbor? What do you want God to do in our community? What do you want God to do in the nations? Because we sing. Singing is a powerful weapon in our arsenal to fight the good fight of faith. And so, beloved, we need to sing often. We need to sing often. And you need to be singing at home. And you need to be singing as you are walking down the street. And you need to be singing as you are going about your affairs as a mom, as a dad, in whatever your employment is, as a student, as you play baseball, whatever you do, the Apostle Paul is telling us that that psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are to be on the tips of our tongues and a melody is to be in our heart. Because there is power in singing we need to be singing often. If you are struggling with a sin in your life and you are not singing, if you are not taking these solid, reformed hymns and songs onto your lips, if you are not uh, going deep into the psalms and, in order to make them part of your very breath and life, then you are not fighting well, and you are not fighting smart. So sing. Sing. Sing often, and when you sing, beloved, sing to fight. Sing to look for the Lord to push back the darkness, and that your life may be, bear witness to the light. Sing often, sing to fight. Know that the ministry of song is a ministry of warfare and then lastly don't go through the motions don't come in and half-heartedly move your mouth to the words that's not fighting that's not tapping into the power and activity of God That is not joining the song of the Father. That's not joining the song of of the sweet singer of Israel. That is not joining the song of the angels and departed saints. Sing now as those who are fighting. Sing now as those who will sing forever. Put effort into your singing. Because, beloved, the Lord loves to turn things on their head and take something as simple as a song and use that to take sinners out of darkness, to bring them into the eternal kingdom of his beloved song, to draw them into an eternal song between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that you and I listen to and that you and I sing along with. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the infinite goodness and love that you have for us. That you are always working supernaturally in us and through us to accomplish your purposes as a reflection of who you are. A reflection of your faithfulness and a reflection of your sovereign power that cannot allow anything to stand in its way. And we praise you, Lord, that you have given us song as a way of enjoying who you are and a way of recounting what you are doing a way of bolstering our faith, a way to to say to you and to one another, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, impress upon us the, the immeasurable power of song and get us out of these trivial, silly arguments that so often surround the singing of the church. And Father, use our singing to draw sinners out of darkness and death. Use our singing to to increase the the faith of your people that, that we might trust you and take bigger chances on you. Use our singing to participate in the glory of the triune God both now, And forevermore, as even our singing is mediated and perfected through our heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, who has clothed us with his holy attire and has made us the choirs of the new Jerusalem standing on the front lines of the battle. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.